We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek the blessings on the Prophet Continuing reconstruction of religious thought in Islam, we are beginning lecture number one, knowledge and religious experience. Okay, far away. What is the character and general structure of the universe in which we live? Is there a permanent element in the constitution of this universe? How are we related to it? What place do we occupy in it? And what is the kind of conduct that befits the place we occupy? These questions are common to religion, philosophy, and higher poetry. Okay. So first let's uh, jump and take a look at the, the questions themselves. Number one, what is the character and general structure of the universe in which we live? So a point we made before is that uh, religions in general are saying here's how re- here's what reality is and here's how reality operates. And that is also the point that science has reached in the era of the Enlightenment. Science has been saying that all along, but now it's really been looked at as a comprehensive view. I shouldn't even say the era of the Enlightenment. Uh, I would just say it's more refined in the era of the Enlightenment because even if we were, were speaking about scientific advancements, in the era of Galileo or Ptolemy or Copernicus, there was a, a view of how the universe operates. What is the universe? And so what's the word in Arabic for universe? Do you know? Uh, I do. I know. Okay. Uh, um. Really, really, it's too easy. So it's kaun. Okay, I knew that. And kaun is from what word? Kun and, and kana yakunu. So, so it's basically... It's basically like saying is, that which is, or that which thus, by extension, exists, meaning the universe. And so, and then the next question is, uh, in the constitution of this universe, is there anything permanent? Okay, that would be the next logical question. So what is the general character and structure? Is anything permanent? And then moving it closer to us, closer to home, uh, how are we related to it? What is our place in it? And what is our conduct? So he's asking what would be general questions. And so he's saying these are the common questions for religion, philosophy, and, and, and higher poetry. But, but think about this as a way to try to answer uh, or try to distinguish between different traditions. Often we distinguish between different traditions from the bottom up, meaning, okay, what do you believe and what are things you're supposed to do? Here he's doing the inverse. He's saying, what is your tradition say about reality and then moving from that big question down to the question of conduct Mm -hmm. usually begin with conduct and then we might extend outwards and why is this important because usually when we're discussing religions or we're exploring religions we get we focus on conduct and then we might get caught up in peripheral things so very common questions i get are things like about concubines Mm -hmm which for my practice and teaching of Islam is almost completely irrelevant, but it's a question I get very commonly, right? Understandably, like people are trying to reconcile it. Um, but before getting to that, the suggestion is, okay, what is the picture of how, what is everything and how does everything work? But I feel like it depends on the person or the audience, sure. because a lot of people will approach interfaith uh, discussions from a theological perspective. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's absolutely true for someone who is looking across traditions. Mm-hmm. But in contrast, I'm speaking of someone who is searching for truth. 
mm-hmm. and I'm saying, I'm suggesting this is a better way. Yeah. Because if you're starting from the uh, realm of conduct, uh, it gets very easy to force all the religions to look the same. Because here's your house of worship, this is your house of worship, that's your house of worship. Here's your holiday, here's your holiday, here's your holiday, here's your diet and clothing, here's your diet and clothing, here's your scripture, here's your hero, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And especially in the secular outlook, that's what it forces all the religions to do. They become interchangeable by forcing every religion to have a house of worship, a holiday, diet, clothing, things like that. Like that process of categorization. Kind yes, of. yeah. And so, but the search for truth is getting into the big questions. Like, what is reality itself? Which then, in terms of what we know, he's using the word universe here. Uh, If we ask the same question, not in the 1930s, but in 2019, we might even just, we might say, not even use the word universe, we might just say greater reality. Because we have the theories of a multiverse and such. But uh, essentially, in the search for truth, I'm saying, if you start from conduct, then almost all religions look the same. And so you start from the big questions, then they become very different. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because even if we go across Abrahamic traditions and just Islam and Christianity, it looks like we're both saying, okay, there's a paradise and there's a hell. But if we're really being true to both texts, no, there isn't. In Christianity, it's eternal life. In Islam, there is this very, there's this very uh, vivid depiction of paradise. And then in, in, uh, in Christianity, what is hell? It could be the other place or the underworld or something like that. And then we have a very different depiction. And so we often like to say religions all have the same goals and stuff. Again, if you start from conduct, yeah, because then they focus on truth and selflessness and stuff like that. But if you actually really look at the whole picture, every religion is very different from everyone else. In terms of? The whole picture. The whole picture. Yeah. Uh, so, but he mentions here, um, um, philosophy and higher poetry. Yeah. So what we talk about right now, is that not limited to kind of, um, your layperson and social scientists? Uh, like that I'm focus, not understanding, but go further. That focus on like conduct, is that not only, like the only people who would ask about conduct over anything else? Or who would prioritize conduct over anything else is like modern social science yeah, that makes and sense. late people. Yeah, because the social sciences are literally looking at human action yeah. and patterns in human action. And the lay person is looking often at what is closest to them on the ground. Right. Yeah. And then you have your type of person who is looking at the big questions and trying to make sense of all those. So like a philosopher or a poet, would their first instinct, I, I don't think, would be to look at conduct. No, probably not. A philosopher, maybe. A uh, philosopher really depends on when they're yeah. starting from, yeah. you know, what is their point of departure. The poet, I think, is also potentially all over the place. Like, just uh, how would you distinguish between these three, religion, philosophy, and poetry? I think they're very intertwined and they inform each other. Okay, so how are they similar then? Um, they help an individual make sense of the world, so interpret okay. reality. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I think that in itself is a very important uh, uh, thing to point out, that they are trying to make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would suggest religion is a bit more systematized, mm-hmm. and it includes philosophy and poetry. Right. Right. 
and I think philosophy is more on the rational side and poetry is more on the non-rational side. Mm-hmm. Often, but not always. So we have, uh, the we often speak about the Enlightenment thinkers who focused on empirical philosophy, like having data and such. What was the big movement that challenged them? Do you know? We never talk about them. Can you repeat the question? Okay, so a couple hundred years ago, we have the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And the Enlightenment thinkers often focus on rational thought and empirical philosophy, which is essentially sort of like, you know, trying to have data to support your your theories. What's the big movement that pushes back against them? Wasn't like romanticism the, like, emotional side of it? Yeah, the romantics. And the romantics are arguing... I can also attain truth as well as you can. That you have data and such and sense data. I can get to truth perhaps even better than you can. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. This might be a side point, but then is like scholastic criticism of art or poetry or whatever, is that kind of interpreting a non rational discourse through a rational perspective? I think that's what it attempts to do. Uh, uh, that uh, it's there's the search you see this a lot in in art that very often if you go to uh, an art museum and one of what are they called the docents they're telling you about here's this painting and such uh, they're not going to focus very much on meaning they're going to focus on construction here's the type of paint this person used and here's the type of brushes and this and that and they stay away from the question of meaning and part of it is they'll say, well, the meaning is in the eye of the beholder, or it's in the artist, or it's debatable, or something like that. Yet for the artist or the person appreciating the art, that might be the most important part. Second might be construction. And so this is always the big question. Uh, you know, even why does someone like something? Mm-hmm. So there's the adage of Hollywood, nobody knows anything. So... Why is it that this Will Smith movie that's out right now, Will Smith is one of the biggest stars yeah. in the history of Hollywood, and why is his movie a complete failure, mm-hmm. right? Um, is it because the critics panned it? I mean, critics usually don't have that much power. And think about how much this movie was getting advertised, and yet complete mm-hmm. box office bust. Yeah, I, I was doing <coughs> my forums online, and like, people, I, I think people themselves felt like it emphasized the technology that was used to make it and not Yeah, that's the, the, cri- the criticism by the critics. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That, you know, so a film is usually 24 frames per second, and mm-hmm. this one was something like 120 yeah. frames yeah, per yeah. second, which no theater in the world is capable of broadcasting, which means when you watch it on the screen, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be poor. It's going to mm-hmm. be very nasty looking. But that doesn't seem to be the word of mouth, you know. It just seems like even for the first week, no one showed up. So, so yeah, but the point being, uh, 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 what is it about human taste, taste alone, they'll prefer this versus that. And on top of that, when we get to meaning, uh, it is this ongoing quest to try to figure out how to make it into a science. Mm -hmm. And we're not there yet. It always feels like we're getting closer, but we're not. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. But the kind of knowledge... But the kind of knowledge that poetic inspiration brings is essentially individual in its character. It is figurative, vague, and indefinite. 
Religion, in its more advanced forms, rises higher than poetry. It moves from individual to society. In its attitude towards the ultimate reality, it is opposed to the limitations of man. It enlarges his claims and holds out the prospect of nothing less than a direct vision of reality. Okay, so before we get into philosophy, what is it saying about poetry? Poetry tends to be individualistic. Whereas religion is taking you from the individual to, in his language, society. And religion has higher aspirations than poetry. As poetry does not really include religion, but religion often includes poetry. I often like to speak of religion as the ultimate art form, because it includes within it all the other art forms. If we look at religion as an art form. And then, uh, what do you think of, of this line, or try to explain this? In its attitude towards ultimate reality, it is opposed to the limitations of man. What do you think? So if I were to paraphrase it, I would say, um, religion, in, in how it portrays ultimate reality, it... Right. So the concept of opposition is what's throwing me. Like okay. obviously we know that um, in our tradition that humans are limited in their intellectual and like okay. conceptual capacity. Okay. So capacity wise, humans might be limited. I think mm -hmm. that, uh, I would agree with that. So let's look at the second half. It enlarges his claims and holds out the prospect of nothing less than a direct vision of reality. So it's saying that if you practice this religion you will see reality for what it is you'll see true reality yeah and so we often define ourselves by our limitations you know like people use the language humans are imperfect i can't stand that term but this is a common term uh, i can't stand it because like what does that really mean um, but then we're limited in physically we're limited by physical ability we're limited in intellect we're limited by intellectual ability and yet, we have the capacity to, to this language is to have a direct vision of reality. To truly see reality for what it is. As though we are moving beyond our limits. Mm -hmm. So Dean is saying that can happen. Can we though? Like, can we conceive of this ultimate reality in this lifetime? So there will always be something that we cannot have. So if we think of like the realms of the self, mind, body, and heart, mm -hmm. uh, we're saying in the heart, you can connect to Allah Ta'ala. In the mind, you can get closer and closer to Allah Ta'ala. But in the body, physically, you cannot connect to Allah Ta'ala, except when you're on the other side. So that will always be something where we're going to fall short. But still, to comprehend, in whatever that means, a vision of reality. So there's two theories. One is controversial. One is sort of a remedy. One is called Wahdat al-Wujud. Mm -hmm. And the other is Shahadat al-Wujud. Wahdat al-Wujud is oneness of existence, where you become nothing. So as you get closer and closer to Allah, you're giving up your free will. And... As a result, you are becoming increasingly nothing in the sense that you have no consciousness of self. This is Wahdat al-Wujud. Which means you eventually reach a point where there's nothing but Allah as though you have now gotten immersed in Allah. Mm 
Okay, so that you can probably figure out, understand that, that that's controversial. Mm-hmm. Now, the remedy for that, shahadat al-wujud, is saying exactly the same thing, except you reach this point where you become nothing, and all that there is to witness is Allah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's shahadat al-wujud. Were these like, was the latter a reaction to Wahdat al-Wujud? Yeah, probably. So Wahdat al-Wujud, a lot of people associate it with Ibn Arabi, who's from the 1200s. Okay. And Shahat al-Wujud is either um, Shah Waliullah or um, Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. And, and it's essentially uh, uh, a correction or a corrective to, to Wahdat al-Wujud. But the idea is still being the same, that, uh, that you can have a vision, or for lack of a better term, a comprehension or a connection to ultimate reality. As though there is nothing, you are nothing, and there is only Allah. Yeah, I think Shahad al-Wujud is, like, palatable to me, because that's, like, like, in, in the preaching that goes on in our communities, like, we, we say to take everything as a sign of Allah, yes. and that's what this is uh-huh. saying exactly. Yeah, yeah, and then you've reached the point where you're truly taking everything as a sign of Allah. Yeah. AKA potentially Ihsan. And so it enlarges his claims and holds out the uh, holds out the prospect of nothing less than a direct vision of reality. And so another way to think about this is religion is calling upon the human, the believer, and guiding the human believer to become bigger than what this material presence is. Which is interesting because that goes hand in hand with humility. You are shrinking your sense of self. That goes hand in hand with increasing what you are spiritually. So, religion empowers you to transcend your material existence. Yes, yeah. Alright, let's continue. Or unless you have more thoughts or questions. Um... Does he talk more about poetry later? Uh, I don't recall. He talks much more about philosophy, mm-hmm. obviously. But uh, uh, but you have uh, thoughts about poetry? Uh, I just never... Um, so, okay. A person might write down something, some some word, some language that's, that comes from their emotional impulses. Uh-huh. Um, and that to them is poetry. Mm-hmm. What gives that like merit? Um, to other people and to <clears throat> examination. So, in the humanities in general, uh, merit basically gets assigned or granted uh, from the readers or the witnesses who will say, yeah, I buy this. Or, I don't understand this, but somebody probably does. Okay. You know, do I take this as something that is providing something of the human experience? So, one type of poetry is going to be coming from people's emotions, but even just think about art, uh, something people are just sensing, detecting, and then they are uh, writing about it, painting about it, making a film about it and such, which is coming from some place other than their emotions. And it's, uh, you know, their vision or their way that they tap into their understanding of reality, which could be rubbish uh it could be exactly truth it could be near truth but making a mistake 
but then it becomes in the eye of the beholder, do I buy this or not? And and so so there's this movie, uh, Blinded by the Light, mm-hmm. uh, about this Daisy kid growing up in England in the 1980s who's trying to be a writer, and of course he's Daisy. His dad is like, you know, you got to get a job doing something else. And, and then his Daisy classmate introduces him to Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time in his life, you know, an actual artist seemed to share with him something about his own life. And that's the connection that forms. And so for him, Bruce Springsteen starts providing him his own anthem for life. And that's how a lot of the humanities work. Humanities, uh, you have somebody who produces something and it's found in some sort of a forum and either somebody, somebody at some point does a dissertation on it uh, or somebody in some authority draws attention to it and says, yeah, there's some merit in this. And... Um, and it may not be easily accessible, but it does seem to, usually when they're looking at the humanities, they're looking for insights in the human experience, you know, which then ties into greater reality and such. And so, what is the relationship between, okay, so there, so a piece of art is attempting to achieve some sort of insight about the human experience? Can be, yes. So, so no, it's not necessarily trying to do that. Right. It could be like meaningless. Could be entertainment. It could be uh, a joke. Yeah. Okay. This isn't related. I think we can can probably... But even like if you think, like if you go to the Art Institute, Mm -hmm. you're going to see a, uh, you're going to see painting by Jackson Pollock. And it may catch a little bit of your attention in part because everyone's staring at it and something about the color combinations. And maybe you get nothing out of it. But somebody somewhere decided this is his art is meaningful. Yeah. Or Vincent Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh, uh, something about his strokes that he uses these little tiny tiny strokes in making these portrait, this self portrait or Starry Night, uh, which for a layperson looks like something a child could have made, but somebody somewhere has decided this has meaning, and then other people have caught on. So that kind of also ties into like questions of like authority and cultural Absolutely. capital and stuff like that. Absolutely. Right. right. Um, okay, let's continue. Uh, is it then possible? Is it then possible to apply the purely rational method of philosophy to religion? The spirit of philosophy is one of free inquiry. It suspects all authority. Its function is to trace the uncritical assumptions of human thought to their hiding places. And in this pursuit, it may may finally end in denial or a frank admission of the incapacity of pure reason to reach the ultimate reality. Okay. So what are we saying about philosophy? Philosophy is a very strong tool to critique. It is a very strong tool to ask questions Mm -hmm. and thus to evaluate what he's not saying, but we can infer, it is not as strong of a tool to answer questions. But it is a very strong tool to judge. With the end point in this conversation being, either it's saying, your claim for access to true reality, I buy it, or no, I don't buy it. And who has the authority to decide whether... 
the argument is worth buying or not. So this would be you as a philosopher critiquing the religious person and their claims. So, so it'd be you. Yeah. Go ahead. It's saying that when we say that it's a tool for critique and not especially good for answers, um, you're not going to achieve a definite truth through rational discourse, is what you're saying. So, uh, philosophy, I don't think, has figured out how to do that. So, you give me a proof for God's existence, you know, philosophy can critique if the proof is sound. You give me a proof against God's existence, philosophy critique, it can critique if it's sound. But philosophy itself cannot prove to you or disprove to you God's existence. So, like, a common um, tactic in, like, operative classes is they'll um, do that whole circle thing. Um, and then they say, you know, the uncaused cause is, like, the critique of mm-hmm. um, the non-existence of God. Mm-hmm. But then there's also going to be criti- critiques of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But those are not, like, they're not brought up in those kind of classes. Yeah, because uh, usually most of those classes fall short of a thorough... Uh, analysis. More often than not, those classes are designed to support what they're already taking as truth and give you a little bit of dabbling of, of philosophical critique, but they don't take it fully. Because either you say that we are proposing that there's an uncaused cause, and then then if there's an uncaused cause, that is Allah. And then all the, all, all the effects come from that. And so it's saying, okay, if there is such a thing, then that's what God is. Or just accept that there is such a thing. Or the way I approach, I often describe it is that Allah has created cause. Cause is even applied to Allah. Allah is unbound by everything. But then that could be a, sub, a subject to other critique. But Allah uh, isn't, uh, existence does not apply to Allah. Allah has created the concept of existence. Mm-hmm. Allah has created the concept of cause through which everything in the universe runs. Okay. So then when we transmit religion to children, for example, or like students, um, is that not like indoctrination if you're presenting basically things that reinforce your own Absolutely. belief? Uh, almost all teaching a religion is indoctrination. Almost 100%. Uh, or if it is not indoctrination within that 100, that 100%, let's say it's 99% of almost all religious tutelage for all ages is indoctrination. But if it is not indoctrination, there is an assumed element of truth and it's just filling in other blanks like action, conduct, things like that. Yes, absolutely. So then when an individual questions that assumption of truth, that's when like everything else falls down. For most people, that's when everything falls down because they don't, they don't have a response. And this is one of the challenges of modern education, which is focused on critical thinking. Mm-hmm. It's to figure out, okay, how do we answer those questions? But sometimes it pushes back by saying, okay, you're also accepting these things uncritically as well. So I rely on science, and I believe there's a Big Bang, and there's evolution and such. Then, well, what about, okay, what came before the Big Bang? Are we, do we have something coming from nothing? Are we saying this is all nothing? Uh, and then evolution, uh, even if we can show a clear chain from amoeba 
to humans or amoeba uh, far up the food chain, how did it happen that fast, right? Mm -hmm. So there's still going to be, the pushback might be that there's some amount of element to it, but the point is still uh, uh, that for uh, a lot of people, the challenge, especially in this era, is to figure out, okay, uh, can this truly uh, stand up to critique? We'd all like to say yes, but the lay believer can definitely not give you that. The best they can give you is to say, look, there's these eyes that talk about the embryo and it's 1400 years before you know we discover what an embryo is or these other phenomena. But that's not really a proof. Right. right. But it could be satisfactory for most believers. So, how did the companions get their, you know, um, uh, absolute confidence that that was the truth? Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a very fundamental question. How? I'd say the prophet's existence as a conduit for. Even before speaking of the prophet's existence as a conduit, peace be upon him, the prophet himself. And it's trust in him. That what you're telling, I have such thorough trust in you. I have such thorough respect and love for you that I trust whatever you're telling me. And then on top of that, what? Like the greatness of the Quran itself in terms of their language and their poetry output and such. So if Abu Jahl came along, Billah, with the Quran, he would probably not have that many followers. If the Prophet, peace be upon him, came forward, said he's a prophet, and did not have the Quran, he would still probably have a whole lot of followers. But it's the double package of the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him. And so what we're saying is our approach today is this demand for rational explanation. But that's not what the Sahaba, Sahaba had the in-person interaction and the, and the decision was, I trust this person. Was there trust based on any sort of like rational understand, sorry, transcendent understanding or was it like purely like his material presence? I think it was more his material presence and their life experience with him that he is not going to lie. And the things he's speaking about all make sense. So... So moving beyond the demand for a rational proof, do I buy this as truth? So back to our point for like what catches on in the humanities, do I buy this? And so if we really think about what the Quran is calling you to, is there anything that is not thoroughly wholesome? And, and, um, and especially in the primary stuff, in the secondary stuff, tertiary stuff, we might find some things that we're wrestling with, like I said, like concubines and stuff like that. But everything it's calling you to is wholesome, that people can appreciate. These are natural, good qualities that it's calling you to. Right. But then, I'm sure Jesus was, he also had the trust of his followers. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we're saying, actually, yeah. Yeah, that's the same thing. But yeah. like... Say uh, say there's a cult, like I'm not I'm not making a parallel between yeah. religion and cults, but like or like a sem cult. But what you're doing is sort of trying to figure out how to evaluate truth. Yeah. Yeah. So like, 
if a child is indoctrinated into a cult, how do they decipher that truth from this ultimate yeah. truth? And so this is then when we get back into philosophy. Part of the idea of philosophy is especially, especially with science, is can we figure out objective tests? So, for example, is it fair to assume that you have to have some rules? So, for example, can you have a rule like everyone's free to kill each other? Probably not, because eventually everyone's going to be dead. And so if that's true, then perhaps you can develop other rules. So what was Descartes trying to do? What is the best way he can figure out, to make sense of the whole reality, what's the core starting point? The core starting point is what? Do I exist? Yeah, do I exist? And if I'm thinking, therefore I exist. And so likewise, it'd be the question of how do we evaluate what is truth? For most people, it's do I buy this? And there's going to be the mix of bias, everything I've been indoctrinated with. This is sometimes the challenge for a convert. That <clears throat> the con- So a lot of converts are, are actually saying, I'm broken, I need healing. And so their conversion is actually a cry for help. And then you have some converts who are saying, no, this all makes complete sense. And so this is a realm uh, uh, within the realm of the rational. Uh, but it's also, you know, you just buy it. So when we have the concept of fitra, we're saying you have this innate purity, and then we're arguing that, okay, this connects with your innate purity. How do you test that? Perhaps by patterns, okay? Multiple people are buying the same thing. So, um, let me see. So that trust... um, that trust is, I think, like antithetical to this sentence. Um, it suspects all authority. Potentially. So, so a rational mind will suspect all authority. Yes, or a ra- uh, philosophy will will suspect all authority. A rational mind, not necessarily, but philosophy by design is looking for the holes in logic. So. If the companions were philosophers, they possibly would not have trusted the prophet to that degree. Possibly not. You know, um, if uh, uh, if they're if they live within the realm of thought only, I mean, Arabic poetry, uh, from what little I've dabbled into it, is actually very profound. Uh, but it is, I don't know that I'd call it philosophical as much as I'd call it. I mean, it almost sounds more romantic. Because a lot of times it's about about these ideal women, but it's it is definitely reflecting on life and existence. And uh, if they were people, if they were saying, "Prove to me the truth of what you're saying," before before I accept it, then yeah, most of them probably would not follow. Uh, with the Quraysh, it was almost like they're using that as an excuse. Show me a sign. Show me something that can only be coming from God. And even though I'm already accepting that the Quran is, is already mind-bogglingly beyond human. Uh, in their case, it didn't look like they were interested in belief. But uh, perhaps, perhaps if, if, they were, if the Sahaba were all a bunch of philosophers, then not that many people would follow the Prophet, peace be upon him. 
Mm-hmm. I'm hoping this book like resolves this because right now. Nope. <laughs> no, he's raising the questions. Because right now I'm, I'm like, would I have trusted the prophet to that degree that I, I would follow this, this I think, ultimate reality vision? I think if all of us Muslims in 2019 asked that question honestly, uh, it may be that it's a mercy that Allah Ta'ala made us Muslims in 2019 rather than in 610. Because the fear is that if we were around in 610, Perhaps most of us would not. So now the question, I think the question then is, is it better to have that trust without suspect um, or unsuspecting trust, or is it better to have critical thinking? So who is the only of the companions who came in without questions? I don't know. Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr is the only person who enters Islam without asking any questions. Although it's probably fair to say Ali as well. I mean, Ali seemed to go right into it. The The reason why we pick Abu Bakr beyond <coughs> supposed Sunni-Shia rivalry is that Abu Bakr is a grown adult. Ali, part of the amazingness of Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, is that he's embracing this as a child. Uh, uh, but I would caution your question about the should aspect. It's more the question of what do I need to get closer to Allah Ta'ala. See what I'm saying? As opposed to the should thing, because the should is sort of like asking, if we make this all universal, what would be a pathway that everybody can follow? And I think one of the beauties of the Sahabas is, you know, there's 150,000 Sahabas at the death of the Prophet. And if we speak of the super core Sahabas, we're talking about 300 people who embraced 300 different ways. Mm-hmm. Or even we talk about the 10 key or the 20 uh, they have d- different personalities, different temperaments, and then embraced different ways. So Hamza is embracing, you know, in this moment where Abu Jahl is is attacking the Prophet peace be upon him. Omar, we know his story, right? What's Uthman's story? Does that have to do with marriage? So he keeps hearing this voice calling him. And <clears throat> and then he connects two and two, and it realizes his voice is telling him to embrace the prophet, peace be upon him. Like a disembodied voice? Yeah. And, and so, if we take philosophy all the way, we'll say, well, how do I know that's true? How do I know it's not insanity? And the answer will still be, okay, is it a rational experience? Okay, I may not be able to reproduce it, but... If I describe what is happening beyond the fact that it's a disembodied voice, is it leading me to do something that seems to be healthy or harmful? See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Oh. But then that's kind of like that's what's the word teleological in function? Well, we will talk about teleology in a bit, but keep going. Like that's forget the word. What are you trying to describe? If we're gauging the merit of a truth or of, of a an argument about truth based on the effect it has on me yeah is it actually true why not like i think i'm coming at it as as if there's a truth that exists outside of my own social experience yeah but i'm saying you're asking is it truth and i'm pushing back by saying how is it not i'm not answering your question i'm, I'm asking an equally valid question right right Uh, Let's hold off and let's keep going further.
Yeah. Oh, for that, okay. Yeah, but the, the, point, the, the point that I'm making is, uh, back to your question a few minutes ago, he's not answering any of these questions. Mm-hmm. But he's saying this is the challenge of the era, 100 years ago, which I think we would agree is perhaps at least as much, if not more so. Just a random question. Is there, so, is there a division between scholarship and art? Or in is it Islam? No, in general. I mean, the scholar and the artist are two different populations. Do they use different, like, intellectual faculties? Yeah. Okay. I would say absolutely. Should I continue? Yeah. Okay. The essence of religion, on the other hand, is faith. And faith, like the bird, sees its trackless way. Oh, you know what? We should probably actually stop here. Okay. Because I didn't realize she was sitting outside. <coughs> so, we will begin with... Uh, what was that sentence you just started reading? This, uh, the, the essence, essence of, religion. of religion. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, Subhanahu wa Bihamdika, Nashadu Allah, Ilaha Illa Anta, Nasakfiru Kana Tubi Lake, Wa Akhir Da'wana, Anilhamdulillah, Hirabil Alameen.